I'm Gabby Logan, and this is the II Family Money Show. In each episode, I'll speak to a famous face about the role money has played in their family life and professional success. I'll also get some practical tips from an expert or two to help you get to grips with your finances. In this episode, I speak to Richard Curtis. Richard is one of Britain's most successful writers for both the big and small screens. He's written global movie hits like Four Weddings and a Funeral, Notting Hill and Love Actually, and co-written some classic British sitcoms like Blackadder, Mr Bean and The Vicar of Dibley. And as if all that wasn't enough, he also co-founded Comic Relief. In our chat, Richard gives us some fascinating insights into his life and career, including the financial ultimatum given to him by his dad when he was starting out, and the moment he realised the best way to save the planet was to invest his pension fund ethically. Richard, welcome to the II Family Money Show. How are you? Uh, I'm, I'm like nervous. I, I, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm wondering if I'm qualified to be a guest. Well, you are because one of your latest ventures, uh, Make My Money Matter, is, is certainly something that we will get into and talk about. And that is very much pertaining to people's personal finances. Yeah, but, no, that's true. And I am very passionate about that. So hooray. I know you are. But I want to go back a bit further and find out what influenced your attitude, the attitude you have to money now and growing up and kind of from your childhood and what was going on in your childhood. How did your parents talk to you about money or what did you see of their lives in terms of investment? Oh, fun, fun. These are questions I've not been asked before, so I'm looking forward to it. Well, your, your dad seemed, well, from what I've read, like he was a hardworking man. You know, he obviously had to build a life for himself in another country, travelled the world uh, with his job for a big corporation. So I imagine he was all about endeavour, working hard, saving. Was that was that the man that you knew? Uh, yeah, I mean, my dad, I remember he used to say that his dad made two mistakes in, I think it was 1932, um, one of which was investing all his money um, and then losing it in the depression, and secondly, dying. So <laughs> Neither of those seem to be his fault. <laughs> no, exactly. So, um, yeah, so my dad got on, a, was put on a boat when he was 14 with his brother and went to Australia with, with nothing, as it were. So he was a very industrious, very hardworking man. I mean, strangely, the thing I remember most about his attitude to money is that he hated gambling. And I think partly because his dad had gambled a bit. So he was profoundly against any kind of risk. Uh, you know, you used to get those chain letters I did when you were young, which said, send us a fiver and you'll get five million quid in two weeks. Like a, like a baby Ponzi scheme. Yeah, he wouldn't <laughs> let us do those. He, he genuinely was against making money by not working. And it's really interesting that of my kids, two of their instincts is to be chances. I mean, I think money's so interesting because I think it's, almost born into you like sort of sexuality or taste buds, you know. So I feel we've given them the same education, but two of them are rash and two of them are cautious. And I think I certainly followed my dad in being moderately cautious by instinct, never gambling, never thinking you could make a quick buck and everything like that. So I've always been relatively, if not obsessively, careful. 
Well, you say that, and yet the career you've chosen is not one that is straightforward or has some kind of, you know, regular linear kind of uh, route to success. This is a risky career, isn't it, being a creative? And I would have thought with that kind of attitude, you know, you'd have been an accountant or <laughs> you'd have been a lawyer. Or there was, you know, but that that isn't the way things went. So you did take some risks. Yeah, no. And look, my dad made a deal with me when I left university. He said, if you're making enough money to survive by... A year from now, you can go into entertainment. Otherwise, you have to join the marketing department of Unilever. Because uh, he knew I wouldn't be good. He was a sort of, he started off as a chemist. Um, and I just got my first commission working for a show called Not the Nine O'Clock News, literally on the day, having survived on benefits till then. And after that, it turned out, you know, surprisingly well. And my dad was so thrilled by that and actually for about 10 years handled my money and used to have charts of what shows had made the most you know residuals and when videos came in or which was even before dvds he couldn't believe that blackout of which hadn't been played much suddenly became a big earner and everything so i kind of didn't handle my own money my, my dad did in a strange way that's really interesting as well, that he was almost analysing what the market liked about your work and doing research, the kind of stuff that goes on now kind of with social media about, you know, what sells. He was doing it instinctively about, yeah, about no, your and, career. And he loved all that. I mean, he retired early, my dad. So he was in a way looking for things to do. And it became a, a source of him. I wish he was still around because the kind of there's a very interesting thing happened this year. I used to get like a certain amount of money in one wadge. And I suddenly heard from my agent that I'd made five times as much in that wadge this year. And it was all from Belarus, as it were, and Colombia. And he says it's definitely because of lockdown, more people watching more TV, but also more people repeating stuff because there wasn't any new TV yeah. to put on and everything like that. He would have loved that. Going back to their favourites, going yeah. back to the things that make them feel comfortable and, and happy and secure. And happiness and security, actually, that, that often informs people's decisions, doesn't it, about money, actually. You know, how you feel as a child, I think, if you, you maybe, although your kids perhaps are, are bucking that trend, if some are risky and some aren't. Well, no, but it's so random, isn't it? I mean, there's always, in every group of 12, when you go out to an Indian meal, two people will say, I didn't have any poppadons. Uh, and they're not they're not the least well off. There'll just be two people who at some point got the bug of kind of obsession about money. So I'd like to think I'm not a bad balance. I'm not rash. But on the other hand, I'm happy to pay for other people's mango chutney. <laughs> I can't believe you've still got friends that say that, Richard Curtis. Um, did you, when you were growing up, you went to some very um, privileged schools. You went to Harrow, one of the schools that you went to. And obviously in those kinds of schools, there is enormous diversity actually in many ways, but there are children who come from incredibly uh, privileged backgrounds. And with privilege comes responsibility if you take that responsibility and, and hold on to it and treat it properly with respect. Did that, was that the point that it was instilled upon you that you had a responsibility wider than yourself and wider than your own career? I mean, I, I wonder, because I've, I've, I can't understand why I spend so much time in, um, you know, on the charity stuff that I do, which is now about sort of three quarters of my life. And oddly, 
you know, it may be one moment. There was a famine in Biafra in 1968 and my mum saw a broadcast about it and cancelled Christmas. So she said, there'll be no presents this year. There'll be no fancy food and everything that we would have spent on that, we're going to send to the Biafra appeal. And I think that probably did have a rather profound effect on me. And then I was raised for four years in the Philippines and was very aware there. You know, on my way to school, you'd pass 25,000 people living under corrugated iron with no sanitation. So some little thing must have tweaked me. And certainly I remember making a speech at my public school where I spoke with horror about the fact that when the collection went round, which was always for charities, quite a lot of people put in buttons and Maltesers and things like that. I mean, literally did not give a penny. And I could never understand why you wouldn't share those things that you had. So I, th I think going to those wealthy schools did fill me with a sense that it was unjust and that it would be good to do something about that. Which you certainly have. You've raised over a billion pounds as co-founder of Comic Relief. When you started that off, could you ever foresee that the power of, of the, the behemoth that you created and, and how you've changed lives? Uh, it certainly wasn't on purpose. You know, I almost uh, I, I got involved because I went with a friend to Africa in 1985. And I only did that as it were out of friendship. And then I thought, well, I must do something because the things I saw were so terrible. And it, it, it grew by mistake. So the first telethon that we did, we made, I thought we'd make 5 million, we made 15. And then they said, well, do you want to do another one? And it seemed like it would be a weird inhuman act not to. That was as much money as I was going to make in my whole career. And then we did another one and it was 27. And so at each point, the possibility of how much money we could make was so much greater than, as it were, the relevance of my own desires, you know, uh, that I've, I've, got, I've got locked into it. But also, you know, I'm obsessed by how brilliant so many of the projects are and how a very little bit of money can make a huge amount of difference in people's lives, often in contrast to our own lives. You know, my sister was very sick for many years and we, we spent a fortune trying to solve that and we couldn't. And yet I know if someone gives comic relief, you know, 50p, it'll buy a vaccine and that will save a life. So I still believe in the tiny figures as well as the, the huge ones. Well, that's the thing. I think it's so accessible, isn't it? Your starting yeah. point, uh, you know, if we talk about, we're talking about kind of investments a bit later, but your starting point as an investor into that charity, you can see immediately the difference you can make, which, which makes it attractive when you're sat at home, kind of whether you're texting your amount or whether you're phoning it in. So, um, and you've changed, I think, the way people raise money because of that. But your life as, as a creative and as somebody, you talked about your dad kind of getting on board eventually with what you were doing. I, it was interesting to me to think that actually a lot of artists struggle. You know, they never quite get there. Not the nine o'clock news might not have happened, you know, but you'd still be this brilliant brain inside somebody trying to make it work. So that balance between being commercial and also being artistic is something that not every artist manages to, to get right. Yeah, Did you, I I mean, I think about that a lot and how unbelievably lucky I am. And by the way, 
the first 10 years of my career can be summed up in two words, which is Rowan Atkinson. I mean, that was that was my thing. I've, I, I hung on to coattails tightly because he was such a, a genius. And then we entered a very mainstream area in comedy. And then comedy became commercially so viable. So I think we sold, you know, 15 million videos of Blackadder and Not the Nycott News and things like that. So all And not just in Belarus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that. But um, yeah, I mean, look, I've been so unbelievably uh, lucky to enter the particular bit I like to think, I mean, Em and I often say to each other, you know, would we be happy in the bedsit in Balham? And, uh, you know, I, I I kind of think I, I would have been. I, I think that I'm basically quite a, a happy person. And I think to some extent, another thing that's driven all the charity work is a feeling of how ridiculous my earnings have often been in comparison to people who I consider to be more more talented than me. That's very, um, well, he's showing great humility and, and, and modesty because, you know, what, you, what you've done career-wise, they have been great critical successes as well, you know. So when you have a film like Four Weddings and a Funeral that is a box office hit and a, a critical success and launches careers as well, that must also be incredibly rewarding to see other people. You, lo- you sound like somebody that just loves, you're altruistic, you love to kind of make a difference, but you make a difference to careers as well in those instances. Yeah, I mean, oddly enough, I think not being obsessed by money, though, can creatively speaking obviously i think it's probably very important because mm. the moment you start making choices for payment then you'll probably kill your instinct i mean there's an interesting moment when when we did four weddings i, I didn't get paid very much for it i mean i certainly didn't get paid a living wage for the amount of time i'd spent on it and right. then just before we lost some of the money and I was told to halve my fee to get it made. And I said, can we have some points in the future earnings of the film? And my agent said, yeah, but getting that negotiated by lawyers will cost exactly what your wage is. So you will have earned nothing from the film. And, but his advice was to accept it because it was exactly the film I wanted to make. I shouldn't worry about the money. And then if it worked, I'd get paid more for the next one. And strangely, I remember a friend of mine who wrote what I thought was a better script. His agent got sticky, said unless he gets quarter of a million pounds for it, um, he's not doing it. And it never got made because they over-focused on the money, not actually Mm. making the things. So I think often in our area... The things you, and Mr. Bean, for instance, which is probably the biggest earner of mine and Rowan's lives, we we didn't even think it was going to do anything. We just wanted to record his visual comedy on on film. So your advice to your kids then, does that inform what you say to them? Do you tell them to follow their artistic integrity or their dreams or their, you know, their desires rather than think about that financial security yeah i mean it's a luxury to be able to say that obviously because a lot of people have no alternative but to get a job whether they like it or not at at 18 but faced by that choice i would always say to them try and listen to your you know instincts because in the end that's most likely to be good work whereas the moment in in our sort of field 
you start doing work where you say, well, other people like this. I don't like it, but other people will like it. I think you're you're doomed. And do they listen? <laughs> I'm just learning <laughs> what, what? Uh, whether or not they listen. <laughs> I mean, one of the things we're going to get onto is I do think, you know, the young today, I have a you know very interesting 25-year-old daughter, and she's much more canny with money than I ever was because, you know, it's on their phone. She sets herself a limit for how much she can spend. The moment, you know, the phone pings when she's gone over that limit. Mm. She knows where her money's invested. She actually invested in uh, Zoom uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. I mean, I don't know how much, 500 pounds and everything like that. So I think that they're going to have a slightly different more yeah. hands-on attitude to money than I had because it was basically Stockton Heath, National Westminster <laughs> Bank. When they were little, what were you like with them with money? Did you um, Were you good at kind of holding back and not spoiling them uh, or were you... I was a mixture. I mean, sometimes. I was chaotic. I could never remember what their pocket money was. That was, <laughs> that was the problem. So every time I asked, they would lie about it. So... so uh, I've not done well there. I've not done well. I guess you were pretty busy on film sets as well. And uh, although you you strike me from the outside that you're, a t you mentioned Emma, you're a tight unit. You know, you seem to, um, for, for a family that's in the spotlight, you spend a lot of time together and your influence on them has obviously been enormous. Yeah. And, and Emma is actually more careful and more responsible with, uh, with money than I am. And I think there's often that dynamic in a relationship that somebody you know, is a bit reckless and somebody has to be more careful. Every time I get a letter from my someone asking for money, I email them and say, should we give them X? And she says, give them X divided by two. <laughs> so she always, she always says give something, but it, yeah. it, a bit more moderate. Now, your family, I'm sure your young, you know, your children are not, not youngsters, but they're, they're obviously of a generation that is so much more plugged in to, I think, what, what is going on around them in the world because social media has given them access to everything 24-7. They can see what's happening in countries thousands of miles away without going there. Have they influenced why you got involved with Make My Money Matter? Have they been a big factor in that? Yeah, they have actually. In that, there are going to be generalizations here that aren't quite true. But if you kind of track what I've done, I started, as it were, charity in, in 1986. And, and I still believe in that hugely. But in 2005, I did the um, Make Poverty History Live Aid campaign. And that's this whole other way of influencing things, which is, you know, ask the government to do those things that you passionately believe in. But I find my kids are more and more saying, look, what can I actually do? I mean, they're very passionate about the big social issues of our time, about race, about gender, about climate. Mm -hmm. And they don't feel that just delegating it to a charity or hoping that the government they voted for two years ago will solve it. And this idea of, you know, what can I actually do in my behavior, uh, in the way that I'm, you know, in my action, in my uh, activism, all of those things, that really, when I sort of clicked on this extraordinary idea that the single biggest weapon you've got in the battle against injustice is your own money, is your pension money, which will be more than anyone would ever give to charity in the course mm. of a whole year. It struck me <clears throat> that it was really in tune with what my kids are saying, because they're saying you've got to do it yourself. You've got to take personal responsibility. 
and not just keep saying, well, it's, you know, the person who will do the change is you rather than someone else. So that is that's part of the reason that I think that it's such an incredible message to say to people that the single most effective thing you can do to achieve, you know, the fight against child labor, you know, carbon zero, all of these things is actually make damn sure that your pension, the biggest chunk of money that you've got is not invested in deforestation and arms and pornography and gambling, but it's invested in, you know, affordable health care and wind farms and all the brilliant new businesses. And make my money matter, just to be clear, what it actually is, is not saying give us your money and we'll we'll do that for you. It's no. about campaign. It's about pushing people to make the right decisions and helping them, informing them, I guess, in terms of how they can do that. So if somebody went to your platform, what would they find? You know, I hope they'd find two or three relatively amusing films that explain. I mean, there's just the, the, the first film... Uh, that we did is just a brilliant series of interviews with people off the street saying, look at this list. Do you want to invest in these? And they got to say, no, literally, that's a nightmare. Or would you like to invest in these? And they say, well, that's a dream. That's where I'd like my money to be. And actually, we've done a recent sort of YouGov poll where it turned out that, you know, 50, 60, 70 percent of people say if they had the choice, they would love to be investing in things that are helping people mm. and planet. But most people, I certainly wasn't even aware my money was invested. I mean, I, honestly, I think most mm. people think it goes in a box. And then, you know, eventually they open that box, shoving a few extra quid, and, and that's what you're meant to live on. But, of course, there's no point in opening the box and having made, you know, the money that you make if the world's on fire. So this is a really interactive way of doing a a big thing you know i think there's 2.6 trillion in uk pension pots 50 trillion uh dollars around the world that money is so much more than as it were the cut aid budget or anything like that if that was reapplied into better more sustainable more moral businesses it's a huge shift in the way that sort of capitalism operates and yet still acting within that paradigm. Do you know what I mean? You're not, not saying, you know, everybody put your money yeah. in a pot and we'll all share it. This is, there's still investment going on here. This is still about growth, isn't it? Because that's the thing that people listening will think, well, okay, but if I invest in that, is my growth going to be any good? Yeah, no, but, and Gabby, you know, I definitely would have lost my gusto if everyone had said, yeah, but this is, yeah, it's a morals versus money thing. It's a value versus values. Hmm. But there's been a huge shift and actually most professionals would say that the direction of travel is towards the the sustainable and ethical investment actually making more money now because of course the more people shift into it the more these new businesses thrive so in fact it really is genuinely a win-win and I wouldn't have got all involved because I do want this to be a popular campaign. I want people when they go to the, the the financial officer of the company they work for that the person doesn't come straight back and say, "Oh, you want to lose money." They actually would come back and say, "Well, that's interesting. I've looked mm. into it, and in fact, your pension would perform better if it went into these." Certainly, my pension, which I shifted completely, has performed better since I made the change than it did before. Um, I think it is easier if you work for a company and then it becomes hard again. So what we've done is it 
the campaign actually is looking at every level of, of the thing. So basically, a huge number of pension providers are now creating much better funds that you can immediately go into when you open your pension. So that side of it is getting better. And the law is, you know, moving towards changing where trustees of companies no longer have to say, well, the only job of the pension is to deliver money because there's no point in having a bit more money and then the company fail because it hasn't had, you know, sustainable and moral behaviour. Do you think that peer pressure is actually going to end up being more powerful in terms of decarbonising the economy than legislation currently is at the rate that it's moving? Well... Look, I believe in all kinds of pressure and activism, you know, particularly this year with COP coming up, you would really hope that the government just feels the heat really mm. commits to the things that it's saying. What's interesting about this money argument is that it really, it, it is gathering force with some incredibly important companies that are also shifting their behaviours and accelerating their behaviours in terms of getting rid of carbon. So that you've got more and more companies and as they shift their pension, they make a commitment to the rest of the company's behaviour and those companies that have changed their behaviour feel that it's inconsistent not to shift their pension. So I think you can't sort of deny how much money there is in investment in banks and everything. And I've, I heard Mark Carney describe sort of sustainable investment as the greatest business opportunity since the Industrial Revolution. Because he said, just look at all the money there is in fossil fuels. If that moves into renewable energy, that's a hell of a lot of money to go into new thriving businesses. So uh, I think it's, uh, you know, it, it, it works for individuals, it works for businesses, and it works for government. And all of us have got to feel impatient. And did we perhaps see early signs of, of this in you in Blackadder, when Blackadder was trying to make gold and instead he made a nugget of, of pure green? Was that, was that an early sign of your uh, interest in green investment? Yeah, it, it was not. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it I was, read too much it, into that. <laughs> you, you have indeed. There's very little sign of, of this, uh, this new obsession uh, in my work, but um, <laughs> but I suppose the only the only relevance of Blackadder is that I wrote. We're all pensioners now, me and Rowan <laughs> and Tim McInerney, so it's very relevant to us now. You did make a film about time travel, though, about time. If you were to go back in time, it sounds like you actually your dad got on board quite quickly with your finances. Were there any investments that you made personally early on that you would change? Oh, what an interesting question. Um, I mean. <laughs> I was always so, always I ticked the mild risk thing because of my dad's thing. Uh, I did once receive enough money to like put it in a what was told me to be an exclusive account. And then I think it was 2007 or eight. And the amount of money I had, they lost it so that my total was no longer above that line. Right. And they sacked me. <laughs> but not having enough money. Having because, lured you in. <laughs> because they'd lost the money. So I wouldn't invest in those again, that's for sure. 
Financial films, though, do always seem to kind of focus, don't they, on the avaricious nature of the financial markets and, and you know, money making, whether it's the Wolf of Wall Street, um, uh, whether it's Wall Street itself, or um, I was trying to think of one that was a kind of a positive representation of, of finance. It feels like there's a gap in the market, Richard, for a, an Erin Brockovich of the investment world who goes out there doing good things. Well, I, I would I would actually recommend to you one of the kind of another serious moment for me in all of this is there's a great TED talk by someone called Dr. Bronwyn King and she's a That's on your website isn't it? Yeah and she you know oncologist saving lives every day from cancer has her first meeting with her financial advisor and she found out that three of the top six things she was investing in were tobacco companies so she worked out I've killed more people than I've saved and and that's what people listening to this have to think you know if I care about you know, forests and people and gender equality and slavery and things that am I actually contributing to them? Um, so I'd be very, I, I, I think Margot Robbie would do a brilliant uh, Bronwyn King. I do talk quite often about this subject and everyone says they're going to look into it because it does come as a surprise. And I partly like that, you know, uh, that, that money's not a dead thing. It's a living thing. Honestly, I had a, I actually had a meeting with my pension people and I'm invested in green cement. Cement's one of the huge carbon Yeah, it's a massive carbon footprint. Yeah. I'm invested in a reverse vending machines, which is where you put in a plastic bottle and you get at a railway station, you get out a coupon um, that gives you things. I'm invested in the people who put the oil in the wind farms. You know, someone's got to service those things. There's a bloke on a ladder. Um, and in sort of sustainable food, local food in schools. I mean, it's immensely more interesting than it than it used to be. Yeah, and it's actually really exciting, or you know, to be able to learn that as you know, actually, whatever it is you're investing in, to not just think of it as some grey yeah. wall that you're throwing money over, to be invested yourself personally. And yeah, I, I know. suppose it's such a peculiar idea that you actually have got <laughs> a contribution. You know, people always say that about charities, the most popular ones other ones that give back some genuine information about where, I mean, there's this great charity, Charity Water, and you actually know where your well is and you can track how much water it's pumping out. And I think that, you know, one of the great things about sustainable investment is when you ask that question, you'll get brilliant answers rather than boring answers of companies that just have letters in their name. You're investing your money ethically and you're making sure that's going are you do you allow yourself still to 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 buy things that are a bit more frivolous yeah i mean i've oddly enough i've never been interested in the quality of products really it's funny i i you know cars watches jewel any expensive wine uh, stereo equipment i i i think i must be of of a generally a person of low taste so if if I am going to spend money, I think I spend money on, you know, ex- experience and fun things to do rather than things that have any value. I don't know what the most valuable thing in this house is, but it's it's not very valuable. I always find that question quite hard. The one, what would you rescue in the fire? If you know, obviously, aside from your family. Well, I'll tell you a very unfair, just literally because I'm sitting here next to my books. Okay. Um, I would have rescued from the fire a signed copy of the Lyrical Ballads by Wordsworth. But quite recently, 
Emma was clearing out the bookshelves and saw there were a lot of old books and piled them all up and gave them no. to an Oxfam shop. And, Do you, and can you just share the secret with me? Which Oxfam shop did she go to? <laughs> so somebody somewhere has got a, a what they they're annoyed that there's somebody somebody's written in their book. The but it's that that's what I would have saved, but but no more. You you're laughing now. Were you laughing on the day when you found out? <laughs> I mean, I thought it was a funny thing to do but I was furious and it kind of cements as well doesn't it the idea that actually you know nothing really matters that much does I know, it you know it's, it's a funny thing that isn't exactly the fact that you once you once had it oh and like, like, like the money thing some people are hoarders some people are throwers I'm a hoarder you like a bit of cash on you though you do like a bit of cash uh, I'm getting very teased for the cash thing at the moment I wonder whether your listeners are finding again families are divided but I'm uh, and uh, a lot of cash machines are no longer giving out money, but I just feel safer if I've got, you know, some money for when my credit card bounces or when my son wants to buy, you know, yet another cinnamon bun. Um, so uh, I, I like to have cash. But again, I think my kids think it's ridiculous now. The one thing my son, who's 15, does ask for quite regularly at school is £2. I need £2 to pay for some charity thing. I need £2 to... Yeah. I don't know what £2 is actually buying him, but I never seem to have £2, which um, <laughs> I is... Know. No, there's it's so either... cash around, isn't there? <laughs> that reminds me of that other thing. Why when people say, just give me two minutes? Why is it two minutes? Is, it's is, a doorway in, isn't it? Is it one minute or three minutes? But for some reason or other, two minutes has this fetishistic... Um, attachment to it but I think we are look we are moving away from cash and I hope we are moving to a time when people you know actually have more knowledge of their money and what one of the big things of our campaign is to make companies much more transparent mm. about what they're doing and one of the things Mark Carney's working on is that everybody who's got a pension will know if it's a 3.7 degree pension or a 1.3 degree because the world's going to go. I remember someone telling me that if the temperature goes up 3.5, insurance as a business will cease to exist because the world will be too dangerous and destructive. Mm. So I think transparency in financial things in all levels, be it government, families or businesses, is, is a good idea. Which, which answers the question I was going to ask you. Can you see this moving your campaign from pensions to ISIS and other investments? There's, there's no end, really, is there, to, the, to that transparency? No, there really is. And I've moved, yeah, I've moved my bank account and I think insurance, all of those things. I mean, we kind of did it because we're small. Pensions was really clear. We knew who to talk to. But I think it's really interesting. You know, I'm with a great bank called Triodos who've been focusing on this stuff for uh, for years and that makes me I believe my my credit card is recyclable so generations to come will look back I and mean, we had big conversations last summer didn't we about the history of our grandfathers and great-grandfathers and what they invested in which kind of came to light again with Black Lives Matters and and maybe yeah. generations to come will, will look back at this generation and what the kind of campaigns that you're involved in and think it was a turning point there in the way people actually made those things transparent yeah I think, I think you're absolutely right. And by the way, it's being the success of these companies is being fueled by a consumer revolution as well. I mean, my children really look at, I mean, not only will they or won't they fly, 
but you know which companies are doing the best on clothes particularly mm. on clothes where fast fashion can be so dangerous mm. and so i think people are looking at everything they buy saying where does this food come from and everything so i think the awareness of the bounce on effect of your spending i do think is is going to be a big cultural shift Richard Curtis, um, I imagined, I hoped one day if I sat down and had a chat with you that I'd really delve into kind of your, how you write the scripts that you write. And maybe that's for another day because my just a two minutes uh, has uh, certainly expired and uh, and we've had a, a really lovely chat. And it's it's not been about the thing that I thought I'd maybe chat to you about one day, but on a, on a podcast that's called uh, Family Money, I think it's it's absolutely right that we've discussed what we've discussed. So thank you so much for, for your time. It's been really good fun. You're really welcome. And I think, you know, if families are listening, let the, I, I wanted to make this little um, ad which had, which started with a father saying to his daughter on her first day at work, now take out your pension. It's incredibly important you have a pension. And then was going to cut forward five years and have the daughter saying to the dad, now where's your pension? What's your pension doing? And I think it is a generational shift. So um, children, treat your parents badly. Bully them about where their (laughs) money is. They've probably got more than you at the moment. And it could be the way they can fix, you know, the world that you're going to grow up into. Or parents who are listening, get on the front foot and surprise them and get in there before them. Exactly. Richard, it's been great chatting. Thank you so much for your time today. Gabby, what a pleasure. Um, I hope that this becomes the most successful podcast in history. <laughs> uh, and perhaps I can invest in it. Wait a minute, I can invest in it. And then we could sell DVDs. Oh no, they don't have them anymore. Bad luck. Let's have a chat now with Becky O'Connor, who is Head of Pensions and Savings at Interactive Investor. Uh, Becky, you were listening in there to Richard. He had a lot to say about a lot of things. But the first thing I want to ask you is what defines ethical investment? That's the million dollar question if you're interested in this kind of thing. So ethics is obviously a really subjective area. Nobody can tell you what your own values are. But what we've been talking about is sustainable investing, really. We've been talking about how to make your money matter for the planet, which is all about how it can benefit the environment, which is arguably a a specific area of ethical investing. But the whole industry is discussing how what are the best words to use. So is it ethical? Is it sustainable? There's another branch called positive impact where your money only goes into activities that can be proved to not be harmful and are actively doing good. So typically we just use ethical very generally to describe all this stuff, but there are niches within it that as you get into it, you should probably be aware of. And Becky, how easy is it for people to find out more information about these investments? There are lots of places to go to find out more about ethical and sustainable investing and investment platforms are a really good place to start. Interactive Investor has a full section on ESG um, or ethical and sustainable um, investments and it also has a selection called the ACE40 range which is a list of investments that meet criteria. ACE stands for avoids, considers and embraces to describe the different styles of investing in this way. So avoids is kind of more traditional ethical avoids harm and um, considers is more like um, the ESG. So these um, environmental issues and social and governance issues have been considered in the investment. And then embraces is more like the positive impact um, investments that I mentioned, um, where you know, the money is only going into things that are doing good. 
My sense is that this is very much a growing force. Whatever you call it, people have a desire uh, for it and are looking for it and the market is going to be providing more of it. So how do we measure how ethical, sustainable or whatever word you want to, to use that provides you with that comfort? How do we measure that? So there are sustainability ratings available for funds um, and there are also ESG reports available on big companies. Now, as, as the companies get smaller, it becomes a bit harder um, to rate them. But big companies now have to produce data on this kind of thing, which is a really big development. It means we have a window on what their activities are doing in the world. And in terms of environmental impact, CO2 emissions is the main measure. So what are the CO2 emissions in this portfolio, in this fund or with this company? And that is something measurable. There are other things that are harder to measure, um, like plastic waste reduction, supply chain management and all those things. There's still quite a lot we can't see and get at. Um, but as Richard said, the transparency is is a big issue and it is actually improving, but we're not there yet. This is a kind of journey for the investment industry. Uh, but CO2 emissions is the main thing to look at. And you used ESG there, that's environmental, social and governance. Is that right? Yeah, I realised as I said it that I was going to have to elaborate on that one. <laughs> so in the, in the industry, ESG is, um, is is commonly used, but it's it's a bit of a tongue twister, really. And it's something that, you know, people would probably rather use ethical or sustainable. Environmental speaks for itself. Social would be things that have a social impact. And governance is things like how the, how well run the company is. Does it pay its taxes? Are the chief executives paid a reasonable amount relative to the workers, that kind of thing. That all comes under good governance. Um, so if you've got the whole package, um, brownie points, scoring really well. Um, but of course, there are some that some companies that focus in one area more than others. So they might not score really well for all of them. But ideally, you'd want them all, wouldn't you? <laughs> Has the pandemic had an impact at all on people's thirst for a good ESG rating? Yeah, it has. Um, and we've certainly seen more interest in this area, um, not just the interactive investor, but across the industry. And it started almost as soon as the pandemic began. And it was the sort of combination of people having more time and lockdown savings as the lockdown wore on and we you know, were just unable to spend and thinking, what what can I do with my money? And then looking at investing maybe for the first time, finding out about ESG, maybe through Make My Money Matter or one of the many other sources of information that there are out there now on this area and just getting interested. So there was a, a, quite a significant rise in demand for information about this kind of thing at the start of the pandemic and it hasn't really gone away. Richard also talked about persuading older generations that this is for them and, you know, children talking to their parents. So the bottom line for a lot of people will be, but is it a good investment? Does it have good returns? There's absolutely no reason to, to expect ethical or sustainable investments to perform more poorly than non-ethical or mainstream it seems a bit weird to call something non-ethical but may more mainstream investments and there's been countless studies by some really big banks and really big asset managers that prove you don't need to expect a sacrifice returns so um i mean clearly you know there are some trends so we, some people think this is a trend um but if you're thinking about investing over the very long term say for your pension or, or whatever that's sort of 10 years or more in the future, 
um, then you wouldn't expect to see any difference really in ethical or non-ethical returns. What about if you decide, right, this is what I want to do? How difficult is it to to move your pension, depending on whether you have a private pension or whether it's a work-based pension? If you've got a workplace pension, um, you're getting employer contributions. So you don't want to sacrifice those. So what you would want to do is look at whether you can move to a different fund within your workplace pension scheme. Because as Richard said, lots of them do now offer sustainable fund alternatives to the main funds that that your work pension is invested in. So that's really good. Not all do, though, so that's when it can get a bit disappointing. Um, But if you can't move your existing workplace scheme, you can look at old workplace schemes because we all have lots of jobs in our past um, and it may be better for you to um, move those pensions to a sustainable SIP, which is something that you can get on Interactive, self-invested personal pension, SIP for short, Um, or um, it doesn't have to be a SIP, it can be another type of personal pension. And you can do what's called consolidating old workplace schemes into one place, and you can choose where you put them. Um, That has the advantage, you're not losing employer contributions anymore if you move your old workplace schemes across. Whereas if you moved your existing workplace scheme, you might risk losing those employer contributions. With, work, with your existing workplace ones, you can um, sometimes ask your employer to pay into a self-invested personal pension for you, but not all of them will do that. So it's worth asking because they might, but again, be prepared to be disappointed with that. Um, and if all else fails, just say you want sustainable funds. If your pension provider doesn't offer it, say this is what I want. And that's what Rich's campaign is mainly yeah. saying. I was going to say that that conversation, the more it happens and the more people decide that's for them and they go and have those conversations, the pressure is there, isn't it, for companies and pension yeah, funds too. Yeah, they need to see that we demand it and that we mm. want it. Thank you so much, Becky. You've, uh, you've helped distill all those really important points uh, and uh, uh, Richard's financial life is, is very interesting, isn't it? And uh, he was incredibly open. So uh, thank you, Becky. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you've got time, please follow the II Family Money Show and leave us a review or a rating in your podcast app. You can find loads of ideas on how to plan for your family's financial future on the Interactive Investor website. That's ii.co.uk. Thanks again. I'll see you next time.